Welcome to the guest house. I'm Sean Perel. I'm an integrative therapist, a yoga and meditation teacher, a lifelong student of the thesis of our belonging. And I'm also a parent and a fellow human being grappling with many of the same questions that you may be grappling with too. In these conversations, I'm turning to some of the folks I most admire, and together we're exploring the complexities and also the creative potential of being human in an era of radical change. Thank you so much for being with us. My guest today is David Keplinger. David is a professor, a translator, a musician, and most notably, he is the author of eight collections of poetry for which he has been the recipient of numerous prestigious prizes over the years. David has taught at American University in Washington, D.C. since 2007. In May 2022, he was named American Scholar Teacher of the Year. He's also the founder of the Mindfulness Center at American University, and he teaches regular meditation mindfulness classes there. David's most recent collection of poetry is called Ice. And Ice has to do with themes of excavation, of darkness and light, and of unearthing within our memory for the purpose of healing. And I felt that this conversation really on the grounds of bringing from the unconscious to the conscious was particularly poignant for our first ever podcast episode of The Guest House today on the winter solstice, a moment when collectively we are pivoting from darkness toward light. There's a moment in the conversation when a deer steps out of the forest behind David's home where we conducted this interview. And David describes the deer as an envoy of the transcendent. And I love this description, and it is in many ways encapsulating of my hope, my prayer for this conversation to serve you as an envoy of the transcendent. May it inspire or spark some thread of inquiry or conversation or a deep, silent contemplation for you. On to our conversation. Here is David Keplinger. There's a line that I use for an epigraph in part two of this book, and it comes from Rick Barrett's book, The Galleons. It's a book that was published in, I think, 2020. And it's about Rick, who is a Filipino-American, thinking about the galleons and the colonization that uh, wrought havoc on his ancestors' world. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if that hadn't happened, then he wouldn't exist. Mm -hmm. And this cognitive cognitive dissonance that arises from thinking about the um, the must be and the 
can't be mm. of that situation. And the line that stays with me is actually a, a piece of quoted material from his book, but the line is research is mourning. And so hmm. the, the more that we research our country um, and ourselves, our past, um, our planet, the more we are confronted with this experience of mourning because we find out about all the suffering that preceded us and which had to be in order for us to exist. Mm -hmm. So this, this fascination that I started to have with animals from Siberia, 40,000 years old, 50,000 years old, that were being discovered as a result of climate change, on the one hand, brought up mourning about what was happening to our planet, that this permafrost, which had had been intact for 50,000 years, was now actually melting mm -hmm. and a sign of things to come, mm -hmm. as, as some say. Um, so there's, there's that, there's the undeniable fact that this is the sign of things to come. But on the other side, the, the revelations that come up with these animals is that we get a chance to look at the bodies that had been shrouded in literal and metaphorical ice mm -hmm. that are the history of our planet, but also our own histories. The second part and the third part of the book go into the bodies that are that are frozen in the layers of ice in me mm. and in our country uh, that through whatever light is shined on them begin to melt and be revealed. Mm -hmm. So these bodies for me have to do with childhood bodies, infant bodies uh, and you know the bodies from adolescence that are popping up now and then and actually interacting with the world as though this is the real world, that, that they believe that they're still me. And I have now become someone else. I'm not the same person as I was when I was a child or when I was an adolescent or a young adult. But in moments of triggered you know, PTSD or, or uh, um, memory, deep memory, they make their appearance and they interact with the world and they have their reactive ways that go back to times before, you know, my, my maturity was able to see that, uh, this is the real world. This is where I am right now. I'm not there anymore. Mm -hmm. So there's a real, there's a real psychological reading of these animals that I wanted to get into. Mm -hmm. And then there's a historical reading too. I wanted for so long to write about the, uh, history of enslavement in this country mm. and never wanted to touch it because it's not my story. Mm. But at the same time, I am living on the, the layers of ice, on the layers of ice, on the layers of ice, of all of that free labor mm. that was, was the result of this country and this economy in which we live and thrive and enjoy certain privileges. So how do you do that? This, my way of doing that was by looking at these animals and writing about wolves and, uh, and uh, larks and uh, woolly rhinos and to think about uh, the ways that that which is hidden can be revealed metaphorically in poetry. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is uh, 
a book that's my way of writing about the history of the United States without appropriating somebody else's story. Mm-hmm. I know it's there and that's all that matters is what I want to say. There's something, will you, will you choose one of the earlier, one of the, these, this, this idea of what gets dredged up, right? What gets dredged up. What's, what gets dredged up, what we have to encounter in encountering our personal histories and our collective histories. Mm-hmm. How about this one? Sketch of Wings and Gorham's Cave. This is not about animals. This is about seeing a, I want to call it cave art, but it might not even be cave art, in a place called Gorham's Cave in Spain. And it's the only known cave drawing done by Neanderthals. Mm. And it's really just a kind of sideways tic-tac-toe board. And anthropologists aren't sure if it's a name or if it's a tribal marker or if it's an I am here um, or if it's just a random doodle on a, on a cave wall or if it's supposed to represent something like a bird. <laughs> and the mystery of it so fascinated me because I thought about the one or two percent of so many humans, so many homo sapiens that have Neanderthal DNA in them Mm -hmm. and what that little strain represents. It represents people taken away from their tribe. It represents um, the the extinction of the Neanderthals. It represents the assimilation of women Mm -hmm. from Neanderthal tribes into Homo sapien tribes. And that line is still in us Mm -hmm. and the slivers of their existence are still in us. Mm -hmm. So this, this is called Sketch of Wings in Gorham's Cave. And there's a, a little epigraph from Elizabeth Colbert's article from which I learned this, this material. The article's called Sleeping with the Enemy. It was published in The New Yorker about 10 years ago. In a paper published in Science in May 2010, they introduced what Pabo has come to refer to as the leaky replacement hypothesis. Before modern humans, homo sapiens, replaced the Neanderthals, they had sex with them. It may be a name on the wall of the cave, this double-winged ace, this artist's sketch made by you, evaporated one, exterminated here in Neanderthal city, 40 ancient Thebes ago. It breaks the skin of sediment, still pumice soft, and puts you in the thin line of my gaze. As your murderer and your poor son, I turn in your direction in my body and face the portion of the women assimilated, the men killed before their eyes. This is the terrible meaning of Oedipus and Laius in hell. I excavate your skill for satisfaction, decode the friendly way I brush at bumblebees. You speak through me with certain kinds of touch or my ambition toward a beautiful sameness. And now and then you might appear in me at the crossing where some cobweb shines, a spindled Andromeda, I duck and go around. I'm sorry for the parts you gave me that I've misshapen, turned into the fawn, a conniving smile that softens the points of my sentences. I bite at fingernails, 
chew on the prayer flags of skin. The wings explode into a segment of my memory that was erased, and I don't even try to follow them. Hmm. Just recognition of the strains of others' suffering that you can find not under physical ice in Siberia, but in your own uh, DNA. And just turning around and looking at that, what I say in the poem is that I, 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 I turn in your direction in my body mm-hmm. and look at you. And I think that that's what uh, poetry is, is asking me to do, which is to acknowledge again those strains of myself which on the surface don't look like me and to turn to those strains in my body and say ah i'm also this i'm also this i also partook in this suffering i also experienced that suffering Mm -hmm. so it's not just oh you did this to me it's i did this to you Mm -hmm. that is that's probably the most difficult thing to turn and face in your body Mm -hmm. It's there's there's a courage, um, a really palpable courage in remembering, in turning and in being willing to hold these, you know, excavated bodies of, mm-hmm. you know, in our hands and look at them in the light of day directly and and, and to feel the, the sorrow for the parts we've played. Mm-hmm. I think about with internal family systems, you know, we have all these internal parts and it's about coming into a more generous and caring conversation among mm-hmm. the parts of ourselves. Right. The art form of like turning toward poetry to, to allow for the sorrow to flow and somehow through it to sense the light that's there. Mm-hmm. The, there's a wonder, there's a quality of wonder mm-hmm. that comes if we st- if we follow the thread, mm-hmm. if we stay with it, mm-hmm. if we keep studying more deeply of ourselves, of this natural world, and over time, right, as it changes and noticing the changes that offer the possibility for revelation. Mm-hmm. Well, that's part three. What you just described is the, the third section of this book, which is the ways that we access that light. With, with light comes heat. With heat comes the melting away of those frozen parts, mm-hmm. you know, fight, flight, freeze. The, the parts in us that still believe we're there. And it doesn't have to be poetry. It can be the visual arts. It can be dance or it can be psychotherapy or it can, it can be um, spirituality in all its forms. But there is some light that creates heat. And that heat, when it first comes feels like everything falling apart. Mm-hmm. I have everything organized nicely inside myself and I'm free of suffering. Please leave me alone, right. light. But right. the light will not let up. And ultimately what happens is that that ice begins to crack. And like Toni Morrison says, nothing that's been dead for a long time doesn't come back to life without feeling pain. The ice begins to crack and mm-hmm. you're in this space where like this, this is hurting me. This mm-hmm. is not helping it's me. It's the thawing out. It's the right? beginning anybody, of the thaw. Anybody who's had frostbite knows, right? Right. Like the right. thawing out is where the pain, yeah. The pain begins to... The feeling comes back. Right. The feeling comes back and it comes back as, as pain. And, you know, our first, our first 
human response to that is avoidance and aversion. And then if you're able to sit with it for a while, and for me, because poetry was my only choice, I didn't have other skills that I could run to. And that was, it turned out to be a great gift in my life. Turn around. We have a friend. Oh, yeah. Look at that. We have a, we have a, a doe. This is my, we have several. this is my, my sacred animal coming to visit us. <laughs> this is oh. the second time it happened during a reading of this book. These are your friends, oh, your poet friends coming to say thank you david for continuing this work this lineage of artistry if it is the only thing that you have which is not you have many but your primary right your earliest connection to your own artistry through the form well i always say about the deer when i see them on the roadside or in my backyard now something that's hidden wants to be known the deer come out of this hidden place and they're the envoys of the transcendent. Mm. They're not the transcendent, but they're part of it. And they come to remind us that there is this middle space that we can enter in, in, in what we do. Mm-hmm. We can't enter the, the fully transcendent. We'll always be a part of this, this, this changing place, this impermanence but we can glimpse it now and then. Should I read my dear poem? Please read your dear poem. Come and see. Then they stopped coming to the woods when I walked home as I do tonight. At eight, their favorite time to munch the tart green shrubs that grow wild without the world's involvement. I wish they could have known me too as one of their own, a deer like them. But in the forest, Things kept growing anyway, even without the deer, without their bodies parting through the great tableau. And I know that they're absent now, and in their absence, I might better understand who they were or what they meant to do with the rest of their lives. This is the rest of my life. The main road meets me. It's nearly dark. I watch the human faces in the windows of the restaurants. The fireman washes a chrome ladder in the firehouse. As in the twilight, I begin to see what could be called a witness in the falling dead branches in the bamboo. However, obstinately in the flowers, which even hidden stand and open up their small green trumpets anyway. Oh, this happened in Baltimore at a reading outside. My friend Masha and I were talking about, we're having a conversation like this and talking about the book. And then these deer just appeared from out of the woods and stood there watching us. It's a, it's, it reminds me actually of the poem, The Or, because you have this moment of visitation. Mm-hmm. in that poem mm-hmm. and I think in some ways and just kind of tracking back I'm thinking of the Siberian re- revelations of like holding in our hands something having nature kind of lean in in such a way that says you too belong mm-hmm. like we're a part of and and that it's very rich what you just said 
if we're paying attention, we're being shown all the time. All we have to do is put ourselves in the place Mm -hmm. to receive. All we have to do is put ourselves in the place to receive. And then there's a kind of like an opening. And I think the end of this, the poem that you just read is so beautiful in this way of like, if we put our hearts in the right place to receive, you know, truth opens itself for us, right? Mm -hmm. The essence of what we're looking for when we look within ourselves for healing Mm -hmm. is, is, is in every flower opening is in every little moment of the grace of nature, Mm -hmm. you know, revealing itself in, in a way that we can be touched by it. Well, I, I know that's true, Sean, that when we talk about light as if it's some machine that comes from the outside to melt whatever it is that's holding all of those obstacles in us, all of those, those other bodies that never made it through. Mm-hmm. But it's available to us all the time. Poetry is really moonlight. Poetry is reflecting another light. It's available to everybody all the time. It, it's, it's right there. It's the light of awareness. I'm lucky because, uh, like I said, I was forced to keep looking at poetry. Mm. I didn't feel I was good at anything else. And because I was forced to keep looking at poetry, I made it through the painful thaw and onto the other side where there was a certain trust in the process. After I got to a certain age, I realized that no matter what, this pain will pass into something else. And that even this mud, you know, is, is part of making lotuses. Mm-hmm. But at first, when you're in your mid-20s, you have no idea. You think, this has got to be bad for me. Because <laughs> nothing good is coming of this. No. <laughs> you know, nothing it's good is coming It's just hard. Of and everybody goes through that. I did. In my own way. This is about the deer arriving, and it's the third part of a poem that I wrote for Mary Oliver, my my dear friend who uh, died in 2019. This is the one elegy that I wrote uh, for Mary. I'm not amazed it's continued on without you. Another day, and I'm amazed that I'm still here, still writing things down. You were old, and I was young when I met you. You said, while standing in the kitchen, making coffee, not counting how many spoons, the universe had to be, but it didn't have to be beautiful. The week you died, a deer in winter stepped out of the woods here, watching me watch her on the grass next to the road. It was dark. That was back in January. No headlights on the road. Nothing, at least in the way the world calls action, appeared to be happening. So that's, as I was saying, that's, that's part three of this book where uh, I'm, I'm looking at places where important texts for me were written and I'm going to those places and writing about the authors and the content of the text with the, the, those surroundings to remind me you know, of where they ushered from. Mm-hmm. And so I have poems about Emily Dickinson in Amherst and 
my friend Jake Adam York um, in the Florida Keys in the in the South, um, and various other places of uh, poems about uh, teachers um, and those mountains that I used to visit. My friend Peter Rush to Copens in and the snow covered lakes, and you know it's it in a way it's it's um, a litany of elegies, but it's also you know, reminders of where that light came from mm-hmm. for me at very different times of my life and the importance that it, it had in helping me to stay with it, stay with it, stay with it. It's, it stands out to me in the poem that you just read, the, the voice helping us through the water, which I think, you know, Mary Oliver is for the place that she has as a poet in our, you know, culture is, has served in that way for many people who are kind of you know, coming to poetry through, through her poems. Mm-hmm. And I also have this sense as I was reading the third part of like how the warmth comes in, the warmth comes in. How do we thaw? Mm-hmm. How do we feel safe enough? You know, what's the line from Rumi when he says, how did the, the rose ever have the courage to open, mm-hmm. to blossom? It felt the warmth of sunlight on its mm-hmm. skin. And I think that is what friendship can do for us. And, you know, I, I like how Mary Oliver say, like some of my closest friends I never met. And and so the, these these friends, when we think about friendship as that deer who appeared out of the woods the mm-hmm. day that, that Mary passed, you know, to come and just to be with you mm-hmm. as human beings by proxy to our friendship with our source, our friendships with each other serve. Mm -hmm. They're a little bit like that moonlight. They're a reflection of a light. And they remind us of presence, awareness that's around us all the time, even if we don't have friends. Mm -hmm. But Friendships are are so important because they also come to us often without our having to do anything to earn them. I mean, the best friendships we have, we try to screw up our closest relationships all the time. Mm. We We are sabotaging those relationships all the time. And the reminder keeps coming back that I'm going to bloom anyway. I'm going to bloom anyway. I mean, there are, there are ways, I mean, addictions and other things that you can shut yourself so off from that medicine that you really can sabotage the relationship and it happens often, but little reminders come in. If you're really kind of putting yourself in the right place and you're making the effort in a genuine way, even when you unconsciously try to sabotage, a friendship, a close a friendship that is a friendship for life, a friendship that was coming from a very old place and now becoming this, it will keep blooming anyway. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a poem in here about um, a little hollyhock that I put in, a, in, a, in my coat pocket and it hadn't yet bloomed. And it was in the dark of the coat pocket for a week. Mm-hmm. It came from Stanley Kunitz's mm-hmm. garden. And it bloomed anyway. In that darkness, it bloomed anyway. 
Um, and I'm fascinated with poems that were written at Auschwitz-Birkenau, you know, poems that were written under the worst conditions in prison, like Miguel Hernandez's, this poem is an onion, mm-hmm. written from prison, this incredible beauty that humans are capable of expressing under the worst of all conditions. It's like, you know, the, the, the human spirit is going to bloom even under the worst of all possibilities because I think that it's our virtue and it's our nature to bloom. And if we can just pivot a little bit and get out of the way, it's going to happen anyway. Well, and I would say this idea of like putting ourselves in the place is really powerful not to be understated, right? Because spiritual light will find its way. The sun will find its way to help a thing bloom. It won't ever give up. And I also feel, and this kind of, it it tacks back a little bit to the notion of practice, right? It's like, what does it mean to day after day, season after season, year after year, put ourselves in the place of allowing for our humanness, all the absurdities, all the imperfections, Mm -hmm. and still making room for forgiveness, Mm -hmm. generosity, Mm -hmm. living with more questions than answers, like putting ourselves in the place to open to the mysteries. And in this way, you know, allowing ourselves to be felt and to feel like, I feel that this is our work, right? Our work is to kind of come back again and again and again. Mm -hmm. Will you read Emily Dickinson? Sure. Allowing ourselves to feel and allowing ourselves to be felt is, is such a perfect description of that dichotomy, uh, the challenge that we have of being in the world as ourselves, offering ourselves to the world and accepting what the world offers us back. Sometimes it's even harder to accept back the, the praise and the love. Rilke says, you know, that the, the story of the prodigal son is a story of someone who refused to be loved. So that feeling being felt and feeling is for each of us different and challenging in specific ways and radical radical right radical in the times we are living in radical radical in the double entendre and radical in that sense of a radical as the taproot to bring us home Mm -hmm. so this is reading emily dickinson in amherst massachusetts i know how it feels to live in a small leaden room with only snakes and birds as consolation. I know how to imagine death by falling through stories of floorboards like a poem flutters through molecules, air, and time. It never lands in the yard. The trick is not to die while dreaming of death. That's why the circle of doors and windows here remain open a little. That's why the poems seem often to end on slant rhymes and dashes. That's why the hawthorn cone is never quite in full bloom, but almost. I too come here respectfully. I bow halfway at thresholds. I know how to wait at a completely empty window, holding out my hands. 
really for me this poem it's like it's the essence of friendship in the spiritual practice mm. you know to be able to say i too know what it's like to live in a leaden room you mm. know to have even a kinship in the darkest spaces mm-hmm. just enough to encourage us to keep opening our palms mm-hmm. to keep allowing for to keep going to never be lost in despair you know you can't help but feel that when you're in this space emily dickinson's little room if you know dickinson well enough you feel her presence there because it's so small and like a neutron star it's so small but it has this magnetic pull that is so energetically powerful her room and the yard and the hawthorn all of it is is so easy to conjure up in my memory because it just magnetized me to it forever in this poem it's connected to her poem success is counted sweetest by those who ne'er succeed mm. that by being so solitary in her writing practice not in her life because in her life until a certain age she was just very bubbly i mean people were actually exhausted around emily <laughs> higginson himself was exhausted around her because she was so alive and curious and asking so many questions and she baked bread and she took walks with her dog carlo in the woods and she was a gardener and she was just alive in all of the ways that we don't associate with her but in her poetry she went she went all the way down inside herself into this solitary leaden room and she kind of removed herself from herself in order to see all of herself mm. you know and you feel that there you feel that standing in her midst and how everything is just a little cracked a little bit open and how our poems are cracked open they're not full rhymes and there are dashes everything is 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 like a vermeer painting just full of cracks and and sunlight coming through windows she's she's the most amazing as are you my dear <laughs> and i wanted to say one thing about this poem that that i think is really timely is that the experience of falling through the floorboards mm-hmm. of a kind of the you know the ground out from beneath us it's it's really potent um image i think for how a lot of people are experiencing you know this moment in time that mm-hmm. we're living in and the uncertainty not just the the sort of grief and the isolation in suffering but but the uncertainty and so to to feel through the journey of the of the poem falling gives way to opening the door and turning towards the sunlight and opening the palms and saying mm-hmm. you know i'm here with the deer with the i'm mm-hmm. here in the yard with the world mm-hmm. it's what we can do right we can continue to open ourselves to be with and there's a certain faith in that journey mm-hmm. that really is reflective i see this poem as reflective of real spiritual journey real spiritual maturation thank you well, that the, uh, I, i i couldn't ask for a more beautiful response to the poem and a more beautiful summary of it it rem- what you say reminds me of a good friend of mine 
who's now 90 years old and a poet herself, who reading about and learning about all of the horrors that are happening right now as this is being recorded, sat with me at dinner one night and said the most profound thing. She calls herself an old lady. You know, she's, she's 90. She said, what's an old lady to do but know these things? Mm. And in her way, that is her standing in the yard and with, with open palms. Not to be shut down by what you know and what you learn, but to allow in as much as you can bear at the edges of your comfort zone and to say, my way of being active in this and engaging in this is, is just to know it. And for her, it's, it's a daily practice. It's actually a practice to, to know these things. For each of us, I think that there's that edge that we're each feeling uh, into in our own way of how much can I bear mm-hmm. to be with the suffering of the world right. and still keep my heart open to the light. And there is an edge for each of us. It's, it's different for everybody. I imagine that for people in relationships, if one person is a news junkie and the other person gets very triggered by the news, it must be very hard to have that news going on all day long oh, yeah. for the triggered person. Oh, yeah. Um, but there is a dance that needs to be danced in each case where you can only know some, one person might be able to know much more and, and another in the same relationship might only be capable of holding less and you have to honor that too you can't you can't try to rise to the other person's capacity because you'll put yourself in a traumatic situation you'll be experiencing live trauma right there i know for me that there is a certain edge that when i reach it i can feel it in my body and then here we are and we're kind of back to this kind of inquiry about what does it mean to be an artist you know, what does it mean to alchemize mm-hmm. to it's like a Tonglen pra- practice to mm-hmm. take in and to breathe out and to breathe out. And in some ways, this is the, the essence of a sadhana of practice, right? What are we, how do we fortify ourselves and to be able to be in the world, um, feeling and being felt, mm-hmm. feeling and being felt. And in this way, really offering offering from from a from a real place right mm-hmm. from a place of our own seasoning mm-hmm. which is what your poems do each in the words of rumi is a guest from beyond truly you know thank you your poems are medicine thank you sean hey friends thank you so much for listening today if you find value in these conversations here's how you can support Become a subscriber at seanperel.substack.com and please rate, review, and share your favorite episode with a friend. I leave you with an original song written by Serena Joy Bixby for all of us still learning what it means to be human. Is it love? Is it hate? Grieful. Does it mean to be human? Is it tears?
Is it laughter? Is it not knowing what comes after? What does it mean to be human? Well, I'm sure I don't know this life where it goes. The days come, the days go. And I'm still human Oh, one thing I know for sure Is I'm looking for more Gonna go out learn what it means to be human Joy in the mess. Oh, I'm just doing my best. Oh, learning what it means being What it means being